Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Prepoint Pod. My name is Louise, I'm your host, and today my first guest is Tama Barry, who is a PhD candidate and Masters of Sports and Exercise Psychology candidate at the University of Queensland. Tama dances a soloist with Queensland Ballet and a principal dancer at the Scottish Ballet. Our conversation sifts through the nuts and bolts of what it means to identify as a dancer, early specialisation in dance, how COVID has affected dancers, and of course, Dancing on Point. Hello, Tama, and welcome to the Prepoint Pod. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. You've got a very busy schedule at the moment. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you are up to at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am currently doing a couple of postgraduate study things through uh, University of Queensland. So um, I am a, a PhD candidate um, looking at uh, identity and dancers' careers Um so I've got a couple of years left in that. And I'm also a Master's of Psychology with a specialism in sports and exercise uh, candidate. So I'm in my first year of that as well. So I'm doing that as a combined uh, study program. So uh, pretty heavy, heavy load with that. Um, and I also teach ballet uh, around Brisbane as well. That is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, you definitely um, have such a broad skill set. And obviously... You're a dancer from a previous, well, in a previous career. Tell us a little bit about your dance career. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I uh, was previously a prince, uh, principal artist with Scottish Ballet. So that's where um, my career ended in 2013. And I was with them for eight years. Um, and previous to that, I was a soloist with Queensland Ballet back here in, uh, in Brisbane. And I was with Queensland Ballet for eight years as well. So eight years seems to be my threshold, uh, I suppose. Uh, but prior to that, I trained at the Australian Ballet School and Ecole Classique in Sydney. And prior to that, I actually grew up in Papua New Guinea, uh, where I was spotted by the, the principal of Ecole Classique in Sydney. And that's kind of where it all kicked off. That's such an unusual beginning. Um, and how old were you when you were spotted uh, I was, I was eight years old. It was in my grade two exam, 
<laughs> you remember the day like it was yesterday. I had a few weird exams Wow. where afterwards she called my parents in and she was like, your kid has talent. He's got to come to Sydney immediately. And my parents man- managed to put it off for sort of five years before that happened. Uh, I did do so, sort of holiday schools with them. Um, but I also had another weird one when I was in, did my grade five exam and I had a, had a, examiner called Martin Rubenstein who is pretty well known in the RAD circles and he um, started shouting at me during the exam like jump 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 because I wasn't masculine enough for his taste so he started like correcting me in the exam and then after I finished kept me back for another two hours to sort of really whip me into shape. (laughs) So examined you and then gave you some coaching as well. Yeah yeah which is amazing because yeah it was my first real taste of like a male teacher Till then, I'd already always had female teachers, which is quite common yeah. uh, for for young male dancers. So um, yeah, it was a it was a big turning point in how I danced and what I thought about being a male dancer was in comparison to, I guess, my non thoughts prior to that. Yeah. So going back to your uh, PhD, your research topic. I understand that vaguely it's around identity, a dancer identity. And I know that you're also really interested in adolescents and adolescent dancers. And you've had some really interesting experiences as an adolescent dancer. You've just told us about <laughs> that's such an unusual um, occurrence. But tell us a little bit about what identity is. Okay, so this is like... That's not a small question. <laughs> it's a huge question. And it's a real can of worms, especially in um, the research world. Uh, because a lot of people look at identity from significantly different angles. I guess I I kind of tried to find something that kind of brought it together in a a way, Uh, and I guess it comes down to kind of a few different types of identity. Um, so, So kind of our individual identity, or it's this kind of uniqueness that we believe ourselves to be. Um, so it's something that we kind of hold in our heads and we say, well, this is me. So that's kind of our identity and that can be made up of a lot of different things. Then we have sort of our social identities, which is the groups that we belong to. And quite often we'll notice with ourselves that when we're in different groups, we behave in different ways. So we could say that those are our different social identities. And depending on the research that you look at, some people say that we, our individual identity is made up of these social identities almost entirely. And so that is what makes our individual identity. And some people would say that we have an individual identity that is consistent that we then take between these groups and it changes slightly. So there is a little bit of like a, a, a pull or tug along those two sides and that's quite important for my research because I'm actually looking at both of those Mm. and how they interact so I'm very much sitting on a fence with identity and I guess the important one for dance in a way is our cultural identity Mm. so uh, a sense of belonging to a specific group and that is really uh, kind of at the crux of a lot of my research is this really strong sense of belonging. Mm. And I guess I'm thinking about listeners and and perhaps the way that they might see themselves. I am a dancer and that's that's really cool to identify as a dancer, but 
I guess you're looking at the different ways that we can take that into different social settings or the way that we might bring our own identity into dance. I'm not really sure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Both of those things work. Specifically for my PhD, what I'm looking at, and I'm looking at probably what would be a very small portion Mm. of dancers, is a really heightened form of identification as a dancer. So kind of what you're saying there is, is right, where... I am a dancer. We have this strong individual belief that we are this singular identity. I am a dancer. But equally, we have a very, very strong social identity, which is my dancer identity. So we have those two things. But with my research, I'm looking at um, a thing called identity fusion, which is the combination of your social identity. I am a my dance group, my dance... Um, Uh, social identity and then my personal I am a dancer identity fusing into one kind of super identity where when I think of myself as a dancer it also highlights the the benefits of me in my social group and when I think about my social group or doing things for my social group it highlights benefits for me as an individual so they're really fused there's kind of this um, permeable space in between where we can flow between them so it's not to say that all dancers are like that and like Mm. I said at the beginning I'm expecting it to be quite a small amount of us but it's kind of this heightened identification and so that's what my research looks at but then from that there's a whole pile of uh, other research out in the world that talks about people that have a very strong identity that is connected uh, it's specifically found in sport where they call it um Uh, athlete identity foreclosure Mm. where um, it's kind of very early specialization and a very very strong singular identity to their sport in the case of the research but we could bring that across into dance fairly easily Uh, so to their dance um, or there's people with much broader much broader social groups they've got much broader interests and and kind of that uh, identity is spread across more sort of varied groups. Mm. And so you mentioned just before um, sports specialisation. So I guess to give our listeners a bit of an idea of what that actually is, because I know there are a couple of different ways to define it and reading a little bit of research myself from a physio perspective, there's a theory that sports specialisation is where you're training in one sport all year round and it starts, well, early specialisation is where you're starting that at a very young age is there anything else that you've kind of found that adds to that definition um, or is dance specific, I suppose? So very similar to that. So when we talk about the same thing from a psychological perspective, so the physical perspective of specialisation in one sport kind of to the exclusion of others, generally because of time, right? Like yeah. we've only got so many hours in the day. Unless you're Hermione. <laughs> Unless you're Hermione, in <laughs> which case, boom you. I need that thing at the moment. Same. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also our parents are only prepared to take us so many places and siblings get in the way of, you know, our dreams. But... Um, <laughs> mine didn't, mine didn't. And I come from family of eight kids, so. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but early specialisation, so the, the athlete identity foreclosure kind of uh, research comes out of 
quite uh, well-documented um, identity or personality formation research. And it's essentially what it says is that we um, go into one particular group, so in this case dance or your sport, and we dive deep into that group. We only really um, interact with people from that group. We only receive our... Um, our self-esteem from that group, we all our psychosocial needs are fulfilled by that singular group, and so we don't look further. And what this can do is it can do lots of things um, insofar as sort of early specialisation, but what it can kind of mean in the long term, certainly when we think about it going to the end of the career when we get into retirement, mm. is that these people that have specialised early on maybe don't have anything else in their life to latch on to later. So certainly in the psychology literature at the moment, um, there's a very strong idea. And again, this is mainly in the sports psychology literature. There's a little bit in dance, but not a lot. Um, and they've mainly brought the same sort of concepts across. Uh, but really they're looking at this like early specialization leading to difficulty finding or um, having a broad identity at the end. And certainly that uh, loss of identity is very important in how people have retired because they struggle. It supports the struggle afterwards, basically, which sounds very positive but I didn't mean that it supports the struggle in a good way. It, it kind of increases the struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and I guess there is a lot, I feel at the moment, there's a lot of pressure for young dancers. So in pre-adolescence or adolescence to specialise, you know, it, with hopes of becoming a professional dancer. And it kind of becomes unavoidable at the end because to enter into those programs that take you, you know, into a training school that's affiliated with a company or, um, you know, to, to reach that level, it feels like there's not actually that much choice in terms of whether or not you specialise. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, we don't really know whether there's an alternative solution, like whether it's possible not to specialise quite so early and still achieve you know, a lot in your career, like reach a principal status in a company or even, you know, become a professional at all. And I guess if if this is sort of, it feels as though this is, this is kind of the norm or the training path that we've, that we're paving in, in ballet, like how can young dancers diversify a little bit? So I don't know if this is a question you can answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's stuff, right? Like there's mm. stuff we can do that isn't necessarily going to get in the way of the pathway we're currently on. Mm. Um, I think going to your point there, what's difficult is exactly as you said, we don't know if there is an alternative because it's a very difficult thing to test. And if you've got a whole pile of parents who are putting their kids into these schools and you've got a whole pile of uh, students who are desperate for this career and are working hard for it and putting in all their effort and then you've got these schools that are trying to create dancers and you turn around to them and say, no, nope, you're doing it all wrong, do it this way just so we can test. <laughs> you've got a lot of people that you're putting on the line there just to test a theory that may or may not work because we Absolutely. don't actually know. Yep. And I think that's the difficulty when we talk about these things. But what we do know uh, from the literature is that 
even though we may need to specialise early insofar as we need to put a lot of our time and effort into one particular space, in this space, uh, uh, ballet or dance of whatever kind you're specialising in, we can do other things that will support us uh, psychologically. So make sure for parents out there or carers um, that you praise and support the things they do well outside of ballet. If they're a good student, if they're a mediocre student, it doesn't really matter. If they're doing better than they than you would expect, praise that. Make sure that they're getting self-esteem and value and feeling valued from other things in their lives. So then dance isn't the only thing feeding them. It's not the only thing making them feel good in their day. That's really important. And they can do other activities that don't have a lot of time involved and don't necessarily require them to be energetic. A knitting club is no bad thing if they Instagram. like knitting. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily suggest social media. <laughs> that wouldn't be my go-to uh, because I think, you know, those things are great and they're very, very useful but I don't know how great they are for our um, well-being. Again, I, another thing we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really we'll know. We'll find out <laughs> in yeah. 20 years' time. I think there's a lot of studies coming out, though. There was one recently I had sort of read a little bit of, so I'm not going to say I'm an expert in this field at all. There are some studies coming out um, that sort of suggest that it may not be the best thing for us to constantly be looking at people who are putting their best ever life in front of us. But outside of that... Complete sidetrack, sorry. Yeah, I'm going to backtrack <laughs> off that one. Uh, pedal back from that. But certainly finding things that they enjoy, that they can achieve in, and it doesn't have to be to the same level of achievement as dance or anything like that. It's just rounding them out as humans. Dancers are fantastic at not wanting to do things other than dance. You're going to get a little bit of kickback possibly. Um but this is important, right? And it's also things like on a Sunday, going to the park, getting them doing things with the family as well. Because quite often the specialisation can mean that, uh, certainly for me in my experience and, and my life, so I'm going to only talk to that, but I'm sure there's other people. I can't be the only one that was like this. Uh, we start to move away from our family because we're busy, we're tired, we're our hours are full, our days are full. And so we start coming away from the family in a little bit. And so taking those opportunities, whether it's having dinner together all around the table or whatever, to make sure that you're holding everyone in is really helpful. And a lot of dancers at a young age do physically move away from their families too. And that's then, I guess, you know, they either semi caring for themselves or somebody else is caring for them and I guess it must be really hard as a parent to kind of uh, help find those other things in that instance so yeah that would would that be something that you would work on doing before yeah definitely they take that plunge yeah definitely I mean really uh, building up um, and I know that this is quite often difficult you know like um, like I said I come from a family of eight we were really fortunate. My mum was uh, a stay-at-home parent and she did everything for us. And that was amazing because eight kids doing a whole pile of different activities is nuts. She was doing six times the work my dad was doing. 
So it's like, it is tough. And I recognise that in today's world, both parents generally working, you know, we're, we're busy people. So it might not be that, you know, you can commit to dance and to another activity at a similar level. But that doesn't mean there's not other activities. It might be something at school that they can get involved in or um, kind of a little bit of lateral thinking there to find other things. And also when they go away, if they do go away to train, it's a really big time for them, um, as all parents will know, where, you know, you're suddenly in your own space with other dancers. You're trying to be cool. You're trying to be hip. You want to be the best dancer in the room. There's a whole pile of emotions and stuff going on there. So really highlighting the stuff they're good at that isn't dance, especially at that moment, how they're valuable as a human beyond a dancer, huge, because they won't necessarily be getting that every day. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. Um and again, they're moving into a different social circle, so maybe even their identity is shifting a little bit too. Would Absolutely, you say? <laughs> and, and I mean these things. Yeah. It's, it's exactly as you said. Quite often, they're you know semi looking after themselves, um, or they're in pastoral care attached to mm. the the institution. In which case, you know, the opportunity to get out and do other things can become more limited. Equally, if you've moved to another country or another city, you may not have friends or family there that you can catch up with. And as a, you know, a young adolescent, 15, 16-year-old, you don't really want them going out onto the street and just saying hey to a passerby to try and make other friends, right? Like, we want to make sure they're safe. <laughs> so in many ways, that, that process does funnel them towards um, mainly having dancer friends. So again encouraging to them to maintain their relationships from home can be really helpful as well. Any way that uh, we can expand our social circle to people beyond just dance mm. is really valuable, mm. but time-consuming and difficult. Yeah, I mean, I guess once you find that thing, it can it, it's then probably not quite as hard. So, yeah. Yeah, wow. These are really, really good things to be thinking about. And I guess from a ballet teacher's perspective, so Tami, you're also a ballet teacher, um, what are the sorts of things that you would do to help your students find that other thing? Because it's hard. I mean, you're a ballet teacher, you're there to teach ballet, but it gets to a point where ballet teachers are actually spending a lot of time with their students and that, you know, genuinely do care for their well-being and their success. I would say that the majority of ballet teachers honestly have their students' well-being at the centre of their world. There's very few ballet schools. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but my world as a, a scientist tells me there's one, but I can't think of one uh, that doesn't hold the kids at the very centre of everything they do. I guess I'm not going to really talk to how other people should teach because there are far more um, qualified and uh, experienced teachers than I am. I, I can te talk a little bit to what I try and do, um, and that is to highlight exactly pretty much what I just said before. I really like to highlight the other stuff they're doing. So if they're in a rowing regatta, we'll talk about that, give a high five if they did well in that. Um, if they have to miss class 
to go and do a friend's birthday or if they miss class because they have something important on at school. I'm really, I, I like to show my interest in what they're doing. Mm. Um, and that's not really because I want to get into their lives or, or fa- that kind of thing. I want them to know that from me, mm. I respect they've got other things in their world and that they're interesting and important. And I think that's really valuable. Mm. Um, and that's just my perspective and what I try to do. And aside from that, I like to hear what they have to say. I like them to make choices. I'm very, try and be as autonomy supportive as ballet teaching can be. Um, and I like to see that they're thinking and that they're, they're confident to say to me whatever they've got to say, obviously in a respectful ballet school kind of way. But I like that they can say, oh, I didn't like that exercise so much because of this. I'm not up for, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Like they're not, that's not really useful. No. But I don't (laughs) want to do that because I don't feel confident enough to do it yet. Great. We can take a step back now and we can work on something to make you a bit more confident and then we can do that step or whatever. And if they have that ability to talk to me and I have that relationship with them where they feel they can, then we're going to do much better as a, as a um, coach student dyad yeah amazing I guess when now that I think about it often when I'm treating adolescent dancers I will ask a little bit about their dance commitments because that's sort of usually why they've come to see me but in the academy that I work in particularly um you know they all have school assignments and and we can always have a bit of a laugh about you know the chemistry assignment that's weighing them down or (laughs) the periodic table of the elements or And that's just probably because, you know, I'm interested in that sort of thing too. But it is nice. You're right. It is really nice to just give, I guess, give dancers a chance to share a different experience. Like, because obviously they're dancers, you know, that I just feel like they must get asked about that a lot. Mm. Yeah. I've got to say the healthcare team in every space I've been in has always been the safe space. Like that has been where you go in and you talk about yourself as a human uh, Mm. first. After a little while, you get comfortable with the directors and that kind of thing, and you can start to be more human. But it's definitely the safe space where you just, I guess anytime you're injured, you spend so much time there that, uh, yeah, like the physios and massage therapists and, well, gyrotonic teachers is what I had. I mean, they're the the kind of, yeah, a huge support. For, for dancers so I think those spaces do become where you have a joke about those things and mm-hmm. and you can be quite open and free because I guess there's no pressure right like you're not going to cast them in anything you're no. not going to <laughs> do anything that can affect their dancing so they can be far more open with you yeah yeah that's true yeah it's a it's a very it's actually a really great privilege I think being a healthcare practitioner working with dancers yeah you do get to see another side of the person that Probably not everybody does. Yeah. So, Tama, how do you think that the COVID pandemic is affecting dancers and their identity or their sense of, I am a dancer? That's also a very big question. Uh, It's a massive question. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, No, 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 absolutely. Um, so, So I think it's a really interesting time because... There is a lot of um, uncertainty. 
which is something as a dancer personally and from the people I've spoken to is really difficult. We do everything we can to perfect what we do and be perfect mm. for an audience. But to then have total uncertainty is very, very difficult. And I think this comes from many avenues. Uh, and I'm sure this is similar in, in sport as well. You have some people who are just finishing up in academies that if COVID hadn't have happened, may get snapped up for a job instantly. But those jobs aren't necessarily coming up because the dancers and the companies aren't necessarily moving on to other companies or retiring or whatever. So there's that difficulty there and that there's that uncertainty there. But um, I would say that's not all bad news. I know Western Australian Ballet just increased their um, quarter ballet by seven dancers. So yeah. jump on board. They did, um, yeah. Arts in Australia, it's growing somewhere. And... So I think that's very difficult, but equally difficult for them is those disruptions to their training, uh, physically and mentally. Uh, I know the last year of school for me was a real transition period and a real transformation period where I went from being um, an almost robotic technician. Well, loose term. I was never a superb technician, but um, <laughs> as technician as I could be. Uh, into the dancer I was going to become. And that was really the year that I learned more about characterization, more about who I was. And so I think that disruption from sort of that knowing yourself level would be quite difficult. Um, and then physically, you know, some training, no training, this training, that training. Um, I don't know any of the statistics or information behind this, but I can imagine that there's an increase in injuries, uh, probably significant injuries, because you're probably getting people coming back who are frustrated, ambitious, angry, and they just want to dance, and they're coming in, and they're doing things that they're not physically capable of, but they were at the beginning of lockdown. And so I think there's a lot of difficulty there. Uh, I'd have to agree just a little bit on that one. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And the sad thing is that just puts them back that little bit more, right? So, yeah. I mean, there's tragedy there. Uh, for dancers and companies, I think, you know, this is, this is a really interesting time. There's positives and negatives here. I think if you were a dancer that was considering retiring, this has given you a taste, not a really good taste because mm. you couldn't do anything else. But it's certainly given you a taste of what it's like not to dance every day. Mm. So in some ways, it's like a, a try before you buy. The other thing it's given is the opportunity to branch out and do some of that other learning. Yeah. Uh, and time to do that and time to get involved in other things. And I think um, that's been really, really important. And I know from the kind of the multiple dance health things I follow around the world, that that's really been pushed um, as an opportunity for right now. And I think that was a really good place. I think for dancers that were coming to the end of their career, this could be a really tragic time for them because they may not have their body to come back, you know, that it, they might have already been towards the end. They may have already been planning their last season, right, in their head, and they were like, I'm going to go out on this one. Yeah. This has been a great career for me. I just want to do this. And that's been taken away from them. And that's not unusual in dance. I mean, my career was ended through injury. We don't always get to choose. In fact, 
we very seldom get to choose. My sister, at uh, one point I was talking to her about retirement and she said to me, this was after I'd retired through injury, and she said to me, well, you were either going to get hurt or die. Those were the only ways you were going to come off the stage because I was I was a full-blown single identity kind of guy. Like, I loved it. Mm. It was the best fun. Um, so, you know, for some of us, it does take that mm. to finish. And so for some people, they wouldn't have got the end of their careers that they wanted, and sometimes that can be really difficult to uh, come to terms with. Mm. Quite often we think about that end as being the most important thing and forget the... 20 odd years yeah, beforehand to celebrate <laughs> yeah. all that you've actually achieved to this point. Yeah, that's difficult. Absolutely. Mm. And so I think there would have been a lot of difficulty in there, but equally like anything, right? Like there's opportunity. This would have given dancers who were injured mm. time to heal mm. in a space where they're not feeling pressured to come back to the stage. Uh, this would have given dancers who are maybe a little bit older and their bodies were a little bit crusty and crinky. They would have given them a year of rest and maybe that gives them three or four more years of performing. Um, so I think it's a really difficult time. I, I hope that, you know, the dan- dancers out there have sought psychological support through this or have been offered it. Mm. Uh, I think that that is really important and certainly coming back to stage, really important that they monitor themselves and don't do things like come out guns blazing and hurt themselves, right? We don't want any of that. No, please. Want, yeah, please, <laughs> please don't. Please. Um, and also for companies, it's been mm. hugely difficult, you know. Uh, all these companies that run on the smell of a, a rag anyway mm. are suddenly, you know, governments have to put their money elsewhere. The arts were defunded all over the globe, mm. largely, um, very few company, countries actually increased funding at a time when those companies were all falling apart. Um, so I think across the board, the arts have, you know, COVID's been very, very tough. And I think um, uh, it's been quite a, a difficult time to be a dancer. Mm. But there were some positives as well. And so for people listening who are interested in, in seeking support from a psychologist who might be or might understand arts and dance and performing really well, where are some places that you would suggest that they look? It's a hard question yeah, because uh, globally it's difficult. Definitely. In Australia. <coughs> in Australia. I'll narrow it down for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, in Australia... Even in Australia, there's very few dancers who have gone on and become psychologists. Um, It's not always necessary, right? Like you don't have to be, you don't have to see a dancer who's a psychologist in order for them to understand you. Personally, um, depending on what's going on with you, uh, I would suggest seeking out a sports and exercise psychologist firstly or a performance psychologist. Um, what sports and exercise psychologist gives you mm-hmm. is it gives you a specialization in that area. So what that basically means is at the end of your uh, degree, at the end of a master's degree, psychology and master's degree in Australia, and this is different around the world. So in Australia, this is quite specific to Australia, uh, we are all general psychologists. So we can deal with general mental health. 
And then we do a two-year specialization process where we get our specialization. So that's when someone would become a sports and exercise psychologist. So there's lots of things that are really valuable in that. Uh, they understand what it's like to work within teams or within um uh, clubs or things like that, which are quite similar to dance. So they'll have an understanding of the kind of pressures you would be under as a dancer. What it also means is for at least four years of that person's training, they have been under supervision. So they have been seeking support from a, um, a senior psychologist through that time. So their training is really, really well put together and they've got a huge amount of knowledge in that space. Whereas I wouldn't say no to going and seeing a clinical psychologist, counselling psychologist, health psychologist, uh, or any of the other certified psychologists in Australia. Mm. What I would say is a sports and exercise psychologist is going to have more relevant information and understanding of what you as a dancer go through on a daily basis, even mm. if they've never worked with a dancer. And they will understand some of the processes of getting to understand what you need better. Mm. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Pleasure. Last question, completely not related to psychology, <laughs> but this is the pre-point pod. So, Tama, have you ever danced in point shoes? I have. And what um, what are your pre- preferred pair of point shoes? I'm not really sure what they were. <laughs> uh, so I did point when I was like 13, 14, when I was in Sydney. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and it was just part of, like, I was at a full-time ballet school. The girls would do point. I would shuffle around and do a couple of tours. And then I was like, well, I want to do that too. And they were supportive of it. And so I did uh, point for a year and um, it was it was painful. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. That hurts and it's hard. Um, but I did get myself up and fueting poorly. Fuertes. Yeah. Amazing. Not great ones. Luckily, I have ankles like bricks. So um, that probably solved any terrible injuries that should have befallen me. Um, <laughs> so I don't suggest that as a good pathway to fuertes. Fuertes, very Australian. Um, <laughs> but yes, so I did wear a, I can't, a synth. They were block. Something beginning with S. Is it like a symphony or something? Yeah, Sylphide. Sylphide. They all begin with S. I know, right? (laughs) Sonata, Suprema. They were big. It was very like drag queen point shoes. Wow. They were like man-sized point shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Quite wide feet too. It it wasn't something that I needed to keep doing. (laughs) Okay. But you did though later on. I did. Yeah. So thankfully you had that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. In, In a professional capacity? Did you dance on stage on point? I don't think so. I do. There are, there's like, so ugly stepsisters are often on point. Yep. Ugly stepmother, if it's a man, is often on point. In Cinderella, um, yeah. In Cinderella. And then there's the pig in Beatrix Potter, maybe? Possibly. Yeah. And I think there used to be, Australian Ballet School used to do it, where we would like be like Mae Gibbs characters. I never had to do it. But I think some of the guys in that used to wear point shoes. Wow. But it's always like, you've got the role. You've also got six weeks to learn how to dance on point. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, I wanted this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, Tama, thank you so much for sharing your your 
your thoughts and your expertise. And I'm really interested to see how your research develops. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.